everyone, and welcome to Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ben Baver, and we are joined by our friend, Zach Christ, all the way from Turkey. Is that right? Yes, he- yes, exactly. Hello, uh, Zach Christ from Turkey, and I'm originally from the United States, so uh, my English should be fine. <laughs> what part of the United States are you from? I'm from Indiana. Was born in Indianapolis, but lived in Culver, Indiana, in the northern part of Indiana too. Okay, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what? Uh, so we we brought you on today because of your faith. Um, and yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I was born in the United States to a Christian family, dad's side Catholic, mother's side Protestant, but we went to the Protestant church, Presbyterian. When I was 14, I, or when I was 13, excuse me, when I was 13, we went through confirmation and did all that. And then at 14, I became an atheist. Um, I'm going to shorten this. At 17, I became a deist. And then at 19, almost 20, when I was in university, I became a Muslim. So if you want to go, however you want to take that, I'll be that's happy a, to yeah, explain. So, so that's why we had you on, because that's that's an interesting story. So, um, of course, we want to know what was some of the things that motivated you in this uh, transition? So there's probably yeah. not any one like hard thing that did it, but there was probably several factors that led up to it. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'm about 33 years old. So, you know, when I was 14, internet was still just coming out. And when uh, being in Indiana at that time, there was, it was either you were a Christian or you weren't. There was no other thing uh, or no other religion that a person could be just because there was nothing around me. So I was kind of an atheist because I became an atheist because I saw myself not as a Christian. So uh, that happened in church, actually, when the uh, preacher was talking about Jesus being the Son of God. And I re- I didn't agree with that at that time. And so since I didn't agree with it, I said I, I wasn't a Christian. And then by default, I made myself an atheist. Uh, that continued until I was 17 when I started to think if I was really an atheist and you know if I if I realized that my atheism was just based on a rejection of Christianity and not an actual well I believe in these actual tenets of uh, atheism so I decided to research atheism and upon researching it I realized that it wasn't a tenable uh, position and so I actually became deist at that time then uh, that continued until I was 1920, and you know I uh, I actually saw a movie, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. You probably remember that one with yeah. Orlando Bloom. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And that provoked me to research. <laughs> <laughs> this youngin over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that provoked me to look into like Arab culture more than anything else because I was a French major, and you know. We, I knew that there were French-speaking Muslims in North Africa, but I didn't know anything about them. So upon re- researching them, I stumbled upon Islam. It did pique my interest, and I decided to talk with my Muslim friend in university, and we went to the mosque together. Long story short, I met some people there, and we were, you know, through after discussing for a couple of months, I ended up becoming Muslim. 
Okay. So, philosophy of religion. Um, why philosophy of religion? What what uh, what has attracted to you attracted you the, to these sorts of questions, like um, the nature of what God is like, or um, whether or not there is a God? Like, why should why do you think that we should care about these questions? Yeah, that's good. I mean, people want to, uh, honest people, I mean, people who are honest, and I think most people are honest with themselves or try to be, they don't want to hold a belief that is irrational, is wrong. And so, you know, that was why I rejected Christianity at such a young age, because I thought that it would be uh, insincere to hold a belief or to consider myself of a specific philosophy or school of thought that I didn't really think was true. And so, uh, and I think we're seeing that in uh, the Western world with its, uh, at least this generation, with the whole change of, you know, being even a nominal Christian to not uh, considering himself of any religion. So, I I think that's just a universal thing in humans. They they want to be, believe in something or hold uh, that they actually believe in, and they don't want to believe in something that is irrational or that they see to be irrational. Did you mention any arguments that um, persuaded you of deism and so on during your conversion conversion story? You know, converting to Islam. Yeah, the arguments actually when I started researching atheism, it was uh, I went to the bookstore and I bought a book uh, written by an atheist that was detailing and delineating the arguments for atheism. And in that, I saw that they were self-contradictory. The essential argument being that uh, if there is a God, uh, he cannot be known because human minds are only able to know that which is limited and uh, nature, natural things are limited. And so we can understand natural things. And God then by definition is unnatural. And he, he, he used the words supernatural and unnatural synonymously. Uh, regardless, his nature would be uh, imperceptible to humans and something that is imperceptible cannot be known, something that cannot be known uh, cannot be believed in. And so he overstepped his mark when he said that all Catholics were by definition atheism. So he kind of defined atheism in a very loose way. That was, yeah, I think, yeah. too far. But yeah. there were some arguments that I do, that I did agree with in that, uh, humans can only understand the natural world, uh, that which is perceptible, but to the five senses. Uh, and God is being outside of that is imperceptible. But at the same time, in building that argument, he basically made the whole universe contingent and, you know, with the beginning. And so that which has a beginning needs to have uh, an external cause. And so, you know, basically just the whole argument of, of contingency and, you know, the argument of non-regress came in. I didn't know those terms at the time, but I was just thinking, this is impossible if this universe, multiverse, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter. If it has a beginning then it needs to have eventually a, a cause that doesn't have a beginning. And, you know, you could call that God or you could call it whatever you wanted to call it. Do you remember what the book was that you were reading just out of curiosity? Atheism, the case against God. The author's name, I don't remember his first name, but the last name was Smith. Michael Smith. 
Maybe. I don't remember. I, I mean, it's been, Michael what, Smith it's been wrote a book years. called uh, The Case Against God, I think. I could be wrong. Um, so, someone, someone on is that Reddit Michael wrote, Martin? I think Michael Martin is who you're thinking of. Uh, I think I think you're right. I am. So I don't know who the – yeah, you're right. I am. Okay. I found There's the book Michael online. Smith it's Atheism, who's... The Case Against God by George H. Smith, originally published in 1974. Okay. I haven't read that one. I need to – I need to look at that. I actually stopped reading it uh, in the middle. You know, when I got to the argument, I was reading it. I was actually very, very, very uh, enthusiastic in my reading about it. But as soon as I got to that point where I saw, started to see the self-contradictions, that it was more of like, yeah, I don't want to believe in it. I, you, you don't know it. But in that, his argument at that point just got a little bit flimsy for mm-hmm. me. I stopped reading it after I saw the self-contradictions. Yeah. So in the philosophy of religion, it's uh, when, it, when we talk about perfect being monotheism, we often have in mind this concept of a perfect being. And we say that this perfect being is common to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, and that, that so that these three faiths are essentially worshiping the same Judaic conception of God. Um, do you see the concept of God like that? So we, Ben and I, unfortunately, only have this Western perspective, and you have a unique perspective in that you can look at this from a non-Western one. Do you, would you agree with that? Is this a warranted assumption for us to be making in the philosophy of religion to say that these three faiths is simply, is essentially worship the same sort of God concept? Yeah, that's good. Um, actually, you must remember that, you know, coming from a Christian background, even a Judaic background, it, they're not Western religions. I mean, they're just, they're from the exact same source. So if, mm-hmm. if Islam is an Eastern religion, then actually so is Christianity. I mean, they're, they're literally from the same place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, the Western psyche has actually been uh, somewhat molded in that sense. I mean, yeah, you, you could you can see the Greek uh, philosophy coming out in Christian beliefs or, or beliefs held by Christians. Uh, that's true. That you don't necessarily always see in like the the uh, the Assyrian Church or the Eastern Orthodox. And out when I mean Eastern Orthodox, I mean after Greece, so like the the Arab Christians or the Assyrians and whatnot. So there are differences, and there is a Western influence or a philosophy, Greek philosophy in particular. Now, to answer the exact that question more particularly, do we worship the same God? Yeah. Now I have a uh, I have my contentions with the word perfect because perfect literally means to be made completely through, and so I don't think God is made, and so yeah, yeah, we might. Yeah. Yeah, and so we might have to talk about some of the definitions, and we can do that later or not. It's up to you. But yeah, we worship the same <laughs> God. Uh, however, uh, because there is one God. I mean, this is the this is the Islamic standpoint, and so a Muslim will actually come and talk, to, say to a Christian and to a Jew, we all worship the same God. That's kind of like the basic Muslim argument, and it goes even further. We would say that uh, Islam is not a political identity or a socio-cultural identity. It's a state of being. And the best way to say this is, you know, there are no capital letters in, in Arabic. And so think of the difference between 
Islam with a capital I and Islam with a lowercase I and how that would change in a person's psyche. And so Islam with a lowercase I is usually how the Quran would use the word, whereas Islam with a capital I is usually how the Western world would perceive Islam and religion. So there is a difference there, and that doesn't come from the fact that there are capital letters in, in English and not. It's just, you know, sure, it's just how sure. I'm trying to express yeah. the yeah. difference of how it would be recognized in the actual in the Quran itself versus how a person might conceptualize it in his own mind. So there's obviously very significant differences between the forms of worship that are in Islam and the forms of worship is, that are in Christ, Christianity. So what are some of the things that you would want Christians to know about these differences? Because in my experiences, a lot of Christians are largely ignorant of these different forms of religions, and especially um, in uh, Islamic traditions. Um, in fact, a, a lot of times they're just they're just not even considered. What are the sort of things that you the, these these crucial differences? What are the things that you most things that you would want Christians to know? I mean, I'll just let me then before we talk about the differences, you need to talk about the similarities. And so, the basically from the Islamic perspective, we would say that before the coming of Muhammad, peace be upon him, and on all the prophets, uh, before the coming of Muhammad, uh, Jesus and his followers were actually Muslims with the lowercase m. And before the coming of Jesus, the followers of all the previous prophets were also uh, Muslim. And so I'm using this with the lowercase m. And they would, and their religion was actually Islam, again with a lowercase i. And so uh, if you don't see it as a sociopolitical label, but as a state of peace and submission, uh Here's the best way. Maybe the best translation of Islam is actually the Hebrew word shalom, and they both come from the same Semitic root. It's just that in Arabic, we pronounce that she sound in shalom as a, as an S, which is why we have the word salam uh, that you probably have heard. And so the, the Semitic roots of these three religions Actually, they form a very similar psyche that that has affected the Western mind, too. And so the similarities, we can start linguistically, we can start, you know, in a lot of places. But Muslims don't see uh, them as necessarily separate religions. They see them as the same. Uh, Muslims would see Christianity and Judaism as the same as as Islam corrupted. That's how we would interpret it in our own paradigm. Okay. Uh, yeah. So what? Uh, so for example, the Christians, the Muslims will say that Jesus was born of uh, born of the Virgin Mary, is a prophet. And when I mean prophet, I don't just mean somebody who talks about the future, but is a messenger sent by God, and uh, that he is the Messiah. The word Messiah is used uh, in Arabic as Messiah, and so. Though, though that starts a similarity. So actually, there's probably more similarities with Christianity and Islam than there are between Christianity and Judaism, which kind of would blow the normal, yeah. the average yeah. Christian who thinks that actually Judaism and Christianity are much similar. That's not the case. It's actually much, there's more similarities between Christians and Muslims. So we have a decent evangelical following um, who 
put forward a historical case for Jesus and his re- resurrection. And this, so this is put forward as an argument for the existence of God, particularly trying to establish the divinity of Christ. And so one of the things that they do in this argument is they appeal to five facts that surrounding the life of Jesus. And one of those facts is that he was, you know, crucified and buried and uh, so forth. And I've heard many uh, apologists, evangelical apologists, argue that this argument is a decisive um, argument. Uh, it's a defeater for Islam because Islam maintains that Jesus was never crucified. Um, and so... I, this, coming from an outside perspective, I don't actually, so this dialectic move is something I'm not familiar with. Is that something that you would say is essential to Islam? That, that Jesus was not crucified and subsequently, obviously, you know, was not resurrected to then establish his divinity or is, is that something unique to Christianity? Is that, would you say that that's a way in which Islam has been corrupted? What would be, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that, and I'm sure our evangelical followers would be interested as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what is the, the main and the biggest difference, and this is uh, beyond the crucifixion and all that, the, the, the actual point of difference is the divinity of Jesus. So, you know, it, the Muslims will hold that nothing other than God uh, is is divine and that would mean anything created uh, has no divinity in it whatsoever and so that would hold true for jesus for muhammad we have no problem accepting him as the messiah however you we wouldn't being the messiah doesn't make a person divine in the muslim paradigm and so i think that's often conflated if you're the messiah you must be divine that's not the case for Islam. If you're born of the Virgin Mary, you must be. If you're born a virgin, if you have a miraculous birth, birth, you must be divine. Well, Adam was created without a mother and a father in both paradigms, so he's not divine. And so that's kind of like the Quranic argument against that. If you're going to argue that Jesus must be divine by the virgin birth, well, then Adam didn't have a father or a mother. So what's you know, you know, kind of thing. Uh, that's one possible argument that could be made. Now, uh, as for the crucifixion and resurrection, the Quran specifically states that the the people watching, uh, they saw something, but the reality of it was different than how they perceived it. So, you know, his, if you want to take this the historical narrative of this, 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 and this happened, uh Muslims could say, yeah, we completely agree that you saw this, 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 this exactly as you say. However, the the implicit interpretation of what went on in those events is where the difference would happen. So like the the Muslim could say that, you know, we have and this goes into the precision of Semitic languages that just doesn't exist in Western languages. Uh, and I'm including Hebrew and Aramaic and the Semitic family here. We have two words for death in Arabic, uh, for example. One of them was used for Jesus. One of them was not used for Jesus. So, you know, when the Christian says uh, Jesus wa- Jesus died on the cross, the Muslim could say, well, 
uh, yeah, but that was only one form of death. It wasn't the full form of death that it must happen for us to call him to say that he died. But it appeared that he died to you because one of those words uh, for death was used. And so for maybe the Islamic, you know, the people who have a grasp of, of Arabic, you know, the word wefa uh, was used for Jesus, but not the word mount. And like I said, both of these words can mean death in English. And so that there comes some, you know, things getting lost in translation. translation yeah, for sure. Uh, ben, did you have anything before I go on with more questions? Yeah. Uh, so I have a question about whether you have any arguments um, on the Islamic side comparable to the argument from the resurrection that would support your specific uh, viewpoint. Uh, so maybe like from a, a miracle that you guys believe occurred or the, your scriptures. Well, the thing is, we I think we uh, we consider miracles islamically differently than how they're than how they're understand stood in the christian theology and i you know studying the very 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 superficially the 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 aramaic language the words for miracle in both languages they come from two different roots and uh, both of these roots exist in both languages, and an Arab would easily understand the the Aramaic word, but he would say, but you know, looking at it, let me let's just say it like this: the Christian understanding of a miracle is a strange thing. You know, there's a there is a specific norm that is this is this is just how God creates, and in a way, how it must be. But a miracle breaks that norm as a strange thing. Uh, a the miracle, the understanding of miracle in Islam, it's uh, th it's that, yeah, but it doesn't assume a norm that this is how it must be. It would uh, the word for miracle in, in Arabic, it's a thing that leaves a person's rational and it, it leaves him bewildered uh, in, in his ability to understand. So let me give an example. Um, Fire burns, and so the the you know we the one of the miracles for in Islam is that Abraham was th was to be thrown into the fire by Nimrod. I, it might be a different person in the Christian narrative. I don't know, but regardless, so if we say that Abraham was going to be thrown into the fire, and God uh, told the fire to not burn him and to be a place of peace for him. Uh, that would be called a miracle because fire didn't burn. And so the paradigmatically one could say, well, fire must burn. If it didn't burn, it's, it's, it broke the norm that it must be. Islamically, we would say, okay, why does fire burn in the first place? And we would say it's actually equally a miracle that fire, fire burns as it is that it doesn't burn. So, you know, the idea that there is an a, 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 an absolute norm that this is just what fire does. That's not really the case. So fires burning and not burning are equal, equally miraculous to them, uh, to us. Okay. Okay. So do you have any, you think really compelling historical evidence for the miracles that you believe happened, you know, in your sense of a miracle, um, that you think would support the existence of the Islamic God and, and your religion? That might also be another difference. 
if you read the Quran, you're gonna, you're not gonna find any history. And, and so when you read the Old Testament in particular, you know, it goes through all the names and the lineages, uh, and sometimes how many footsteps and how many steps they walked, you know, the children of, uh, Jacob when they walked into a- Egypt. In Islam and the Quranic narrative, it's not a historical narrative. In fact, you know, that's one thing that maybe the Judeo Christian, uh, person coming from that background notices when he reads the Quran. It doesn't follow a, a, a historical linear uh, path. It jumps from this to that to this to that, this to that very often. So you'll talk about Moses for a while, and then all of a sudden it will change, and you're talking about uh, Jesus. You know, there's how much time is between both of them. So we that's not something that's really looked for. Historical miracles, they're not like we have to. It's not something that the Muslim will go to. And that's you know the Quran is bringing like through the miracles that it mentions, uh, you know the like I said Abraham's not being burned by the fire. It's to stop and think. Wait a second. Why does fire burn in the first place? Let's not take this as a given uh, that fire must burn. That's just what it is. It's what it does. Stop for a second. Why does it burn? Because you know if a person has never really heard about fires not burning, he'd never think about why does it burn in the first place, right? So the Quranic narrative is actually bringing it to the moment right now. You don't need to go back into the history of, you know, Abraham's not being burnt. That's not, that's not where it's trying to take it. Yeah. That's not the sort of, you would not be putting forward a historical type case in order to establish the truth of your religion you just say no that's that's just that's not even the right way to even approach yeah it's it's yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not the quranic methodology so like for example the, the virgin birth of mary you'd stop and say well wait a second why do you need a father in the first place you know we consider that that because it happens 99.999 percent of the time mm-hmm. that's that's just how it should happen wait a second think about you know birth how does when a sperm and an egg come together, it forms a child? That, that's that's a miracle, miracle in and of itself. Okay. So, um, for us, a theologians, one of the big questions that we discuss a lot is what's known as the problem of evil. And so, if what we take is the the perfect being concept, and we say that this being is all powerful and perfectly good, then why is there seemingly pointless evils in the world? And so much of them distributed in the ways that it is and of the different kinds and sorts there are. And so that's a compelling argument for non-theism just in general. Is this a problem, one, that, that you've struggled with uh, you know, personally, maybe, or to something that Islam struggles with, or maybe doesn't struggle with because it has an answer. What is how do how how uh, do you frame this this problem and go about trying to solve it? Yeah, I mean, uh, the fact that let's just let, let's assume that evil exists. If you were to assume that, that wouldn't be an argument against God. It would just be an argument against, you know, he, you just say that he was a, a cruel and oppressive God. You, it's not an argument against the actual existence of God. So I, I, I want to point that out first, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, if there's evil, there's no God. No, there can be evil and there could just be a malicious God. 
right? I mean, that's not sure. an, an actual argument for uh, again for atheism. It's an argument against maybe other uh, aspects of theism, but not a, it's not an argument for atheism in and of itself. And I think I need to point that out. Um, now, about uh, my own understanding of this, I uh, don't. Uh, you know, we don't believe that God created evil. And so you probably know the maybe the Catholic position on this one since you've been following on theo- the, uh, theology that it's not uh, that evil is doesn't have a real existence. It's more of a uh, perspective. A privation of goodness. Yeah. Thomas Aquinas was, uh, yeah. was affected by uh, by Islamic theologians, yeah. actually, specifically Ghazali and uh, Al-Ghazali in English. And so. There's a lot of similarities in that. There's, like I said, there's a lot. There are a lot more similarities between the theology, the theology of Islam and Christianity, and that's because, for for at least during the middle, the medieval period, Christian theology was really heavily affected by Islamic theology and yeah. Islamic yeah. theologians. The, Elis- so, the Islamic Golden Age, right? Yeah. So during that time, the theologians of Islam. Uh, were actively producing works on this that Christians then were also reading and then interpreting and using and then also using some of the same arguments. So, like I said, Thomas Aquinas is one of them who Christians will very openly say was affected by Ghazali. Not every Christian knows this and not every Christian yeah. admit it, but I have met theologians, yeah. Christian theologians yeah. who do who have admitted that. Well, now, so he directly responds to the Kalam. Which yeah. he clearly got from Islamic scholars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so like his, I don't know Thomas Aquinas that well, and but just what I've heard uh, when I yeah. speak to uh, Christians who are versed in his theology, the argue, his arguments of evil, the, they're they're somewhat similar to the ones that I would have. I don't think that God created evil, uh, and now the answer to the question of evil is the afterlife. So if somebody uh, assumes that this life of this world is all that there is, then of course uh, there's there's a problem. There's going to be a problem with evil because why am I going to be suffering and then made to be killed and then go into non you know go into non existence or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, if there is an afterlife, and actually that's where the key lies in. Now, uh, is there an afterlife? Yes or no is a more important question because before talking about evil, you have to talk about is there an afterlife? And so the basic argument for afterlife is if there is an absolute, let's not say perfect, I don't like the word perfect, let's say there's an absolute God uh, who has an absolute faculty of memory and so this that transcends time and place, okay, let's say. Now, can that God forget something that he did? No. 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 So he created me, you, and everything else. That means he can't forget us. So that means the uh, non are going into non-existence is automatically um, refuted if we have an absolute God. So a God who doesn't create afterlife is not God. He's not omnipotent in the first place. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes if he's omnipotent, if he's omniscient, uh, he can't be benevolent at the same time. But I think that the atheist argument that will, the atheist that is fielding that argument isn't necessarily understanding what omnipotent really means. An omnipotent God creates 
the afterlife because he can he, mm-hmm. he absolutely creates so it's like okay i'm gonna stop creating guys then you know he's not omnipotent he's not omnipotent yeah and if he, if he and so a god who can forget he's not omnipotent actually and so uh, that's the first thing so we're not going to go into non-existence uh, there is heaven and there is hell too and so you know this this the life of this world is not the only life once that issue is solved then the uh, you know the discussion of evil can be take can take place otherwise like i said i don't think most most atheists who brilled that argument of the omnipotent and omniscient really know uh the you know the depth of that word omnipotent and what it really entails it's just like all power he can do whatever he wants so why isn't he doing this? well he created afterlife and so if you're going to say he didn't create afterlife then you're not you've automatically you've automatically called him impotent as opposed to omnipotent okay okay so i think what you're what you're saying is that if god didn't keep creating new moments and so the future was not endless um mm-hmm. then he wouldn't be omnipotent um but I don't see why that's the case, because he could just refrain from exercising his power to create, um, but still have that power, right? So, can he forget? How, um, can he no, make himself forget? forget our existence. No, he can't. Uh, so is the idea that if he um, forgot us, so if he can't forget us, then we have to exist forever? We have to, at least in his memory, and right? Okay, yeah, as a memory, yeah. So no. there's an idea of us okay. that is always in his memory. That's, okay. But we're not the idea, are we? Or are you like an idealist and you think that we're just well, ideas the in the mind of God? Yeah, what does create mean? And so we often, we often use the word create in English uh, not in the same way that the theologians have ever used the word create. We use it more to mean to make, not to, you know bring something out of non-existence. And I don't like the word non-existence in and of itself. But anyway, yeah. so there's, so it, we're existing in, you know, however we exist in whatever refer, you know, if it's a physical existence built on uh, what it would matter, or if it's a virtual existence, the fact is, is that we're existing in some form. And so we are being created how and what form and what way that's completely different and we actually do say that the afterlife is a new creation and so that doesn't mean that it's going to be the exact same form based on matter or whatnot as it is now now uh, will we have physical bodies yes i do believe that we will have physical bodies but does that mean that it's going to be physical bodies made of matter that we know no it doesn't need to be that Uh, so in that vein if you're going to say that we are going to exist, you're basically saying that we're going to be created. Um, so we just, we don't really exist, but ideas of us will exist as memories in God's mind, I think. That, that but what's the difference? Is not being well, what's then the we might not even have, there won't be any experience of the afterlife that we're going through. We're not there as subjects of experience. We're just items in God's mind. He's just thinking of us. Projection. These things that used to exist. Right? Aren't we like, isn't that, um, what's the difference between right now? 
So, um, so right now we are experiencing things. Uh, we we have a first person subjective not just experience. In God's mind. I think I think we're not just in God's mind. Um, we have physical bodies, <laughs> and you believe that we'll have physical bodies in the afterlife, I suppose. But that doesn't follow from God's not being able to forget us and being omniscient. I think. That okay, so we're ex- what are what are we experiencing that is not also in God's mind? Well, I just don't think that memories of people have experiences ever. Like those aren't the things that have our experiences. We ourselves have the experiences. Okay, but what are uh, that's that's fine. But what are we experiencing that is not in God's mind? And I don't like the word mind because mind entails thinking and, you know, has to, having to wait until I do something to contemplate that. So I'm yeah. using language that okay. might not. Okay. Yeah. So, but what are we experiencing that's not in God's mind? That's not in God's knowledge. Okay. So the experience, yes, he will also have a memory of our experience. Um, but it won't be experience again. It'll just be a memory of experience. It won't be the experience that he has a memory of. Yeah. Now here's the thing: you're putting this. Uh, your uh, that's your uh, specific understanding of God now is temporal, because you're. We have an experience now that is existing in time. But if we're talking about a transcendent God. His memory is not temporal, and so we're, we are confusing paradigms now. Uh, so his memory is not a past, present, future memory. It's, so right, that's what I'm saying, right now, what's the difference? Because if we're talking about transcendent God, there's no difference from his perspective, and I say this in quotation marks, you know, I'm doing it. You can see it in the video, but you won't see this when we, <laughs> put the audio. Uh, when we po- talk about podcast the air quotes. Yes, the air quotes. Right? <laughs> so it's not a temporal thing. So right now, there's no difference. God, we're, we're experiencing uh, God's knowledge through what we call a physical and temporal existence. Now, the physical and temporal existence is an aspect of creation. And so since we are going to be created, there's going to be a physical and temporal existence. But what does that mean? We talk about time relative, you know, right now in this own, in this current field of existence, there's no difference, you know, for the, in the for what we would call the future. Paradigmatically, it's the same as now as it will be in the future for us. We're experiencing God's knowledge right now. Okay. So immediate Um in the same vein of the afterlife, so um in Christianity there's obviously this radical dualism between uh heaven and a hell, and then some doctrines have, you know, this this middle ground called purgatory. Um uh does your tradition have anything similar to this? Is there a hell or a heaven or a purgatory on your view? And what are some of the significant claims do you think that would be about those different? Okay, there's heaven and hell. So what is heaven and hell? I mean, if we're going to talk about the afterlife, you know, if there were no, if there were no hell, if there were no heaven, what would that entail? We can talk about that later. I'm just going to kind of speak a little bit dogmatically to shorten this up because yeah, I don't want to take all sure, the time. So, sure, sure. 
is so so there is a heaven there is a hell and there is what we would call purgatory but that's just an aspect of hell so you know let's just kind of go with it this we would say that every child before the age of puberty regardless of what religion he is or his parents is is going to go to heaven everyone's going to make it to the afterlife i mean because god doesn't forget anything yeah. so yeah. Uh, so every uh, we don't believe in original sin that's maybe one difference between christianity so uh, there's no baptism in the, uh, any of that so any child until puberty is automatically going to paradise regardless so that's one thing anybody who uh, is you know mentally handicapped is crazy you know who never had the faculty of reason uh, is also in that category they make it to paradise so you know the people who are subject to going to he to hell are those who have reached a certain age uh, have a faculty of reason it can go even further uh, to say that they had to actually receive a message uh, the message and uh, in an unadulterated way so you know not just somebody who was living on an island away from humanity for the rest of humanity for all of his life yeah he would go he would also be a candidate for paradise uh, for heaven too but somebody who maybe has heard the word islam and when he did his research all he saw was isis you know and so his his understanding yeah. of islam is not really islam it's, it's a very narrowed kind of warped view yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and and so that this Basically, it was never the it was never the orthodox Islamic opinion that uh, only Muslims are going to heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes, the only religion uh, that is accepted in the eyes of uh, God is Islam, with a lowercase i. Mm -hmm. uh, that is true. That's a Quranic verse. Uh, yes, but you know, let's say a person who is born Christian who let's say he heard of the word islam he tried to research it but he you know all he came across was you know a propaganda a translation of the quran that was uh, maliciously translated you know or malevolently tra translated you know by somebody who had something against islam he never actually received the message of islam he would also be a candidate for uh, heaven too now the thing is if he went to heaven it wouldn't be because he's a christian it would be because he didn't receive the message. So there is a nuance there. And so it's not like you can be whatever religion you want and that religion will take you to heaven. It's not a perennialist uh, understanding. It's a, did he receive the message or not? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, non-Muslims can go to heaven, not because of their own religion, but because they didn't receive the unadulterated uh, message. Okay. Regarding purgatory... Like I said, just as heaven is not restricted to Muslims, hell is not restricted to non-Muslims. So, you know, uh, Muslims are able to go to hell too. Yeah. Now, will it be a temporary time or will it be eternal uh, residence in hell? Uh, the orthodox understanding is that if somebody has even an Adam's weight of belief, he will eventually leave hell and go to heaven. Uh, so... You know, that that's the idea of purgatory. Somebody believes in God and, you know, all this and all of these requirements, mm -hmm. but he 
he abused, oppressed, and did all these other things. If he truly did believe, and God is the judge of if we believe or not, if he truly did believe, eventually after however long he is in hell, he would go to paradise. He would go to paradise or heaven too. Okay. So that is that is that's the idea of purgatory. Okay. So we talked earlier, and we're the same age, and so um, being in America during nine eleven. Um, we knew afterward, like after all that happened, um, Muslims here in America, uh, went through a lot of hardships. I mean, and they still do. Don't, don't get me wrong. There, uh, there was a lot of, uh, hate and not charitable interpretations of certain people's religions. Um, and so one of the questions I have for you is, being an American moving to Turkey, is that something you had to face over there? Was the roles reversed or is, have, have, has it been, I don't have any, you know, perspective on that, that, that differences. What, what has life been like for you over there? Um, as far as being an American living in Turkey? Well, being an American Muslim living in Turkey versus being an American non-Muslim living in Turkey is obviously going to be different. So mm -hmm. the the idea, Islam is very staunchly against racism. Uh, now, that doesn't mean there are Muslims uh, or people who call themselves Muslims who are racist. There definitely are. And so that, that's <laughs> sounds sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, one cannot make the case uh, for racism in Islam mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's like uh, the basic, you know, we the the whole rebellion of Satan against God. Uh, in Islam is he based his rebellion on the fact that he was created from fire, whereas man was created from uh, mm -hmm. dirt, and that he was superior based on his creation. So he recognizes that Satan recognizes the, that he was created. He was actually even saying the sentence to God. So it's like, you know, he does. It's not like he does, doesn't believe in God. He does. He's yeah. talking to him. Yeah. Even, even the demons tremble because they know God exists. And so he's he yeah so he's basically saying I'm superior based on how you created me and so that's you know that's that's racism in and of itself you know uh, one person is uh, superior because he has European DNA or he has you know Turkish DNA whatever that even means you know or Turkish or to use an older expression because he has American blood and he ha or the or Turkish blood or Chinese blood that's that's something that you know if somebody started going down that line someone would just look at him and say. But isn't that what Satan said to God when he disobeyed God? And, you know, it's not an argument that can go forward very far. So knowing that being a Muslim in Turkey does uh, carry some, uh, what would you say? Yeah, some people might think you're a spy. There are there always is yeah. that. Yeah, but you're the always. Majority, uh... They're more happy to see that a white American who they consider to be superior in culture, education, and every everything, actually chose to be a an inferior Muslim, you know, kind of thing. So kind of like that's it's humility. Like, um, yeah, it's 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 they use you know it's like well the superior minded uh, Westerner chose to be Muslim. That's actually points for us. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So, so it's, it's it's not like you know a an Easter coming an Easterner 
coming from like you know the middle east and then becoming a christian in america that's christians don't really use that as as look the superiority of our religion because yeah. they don't see a cultural superiority uh, over them okay so now one thing i will add because we are the same age and you know we did go through 9 one thing that i've noticed is that immediately after 9 11 Generally, the liberal side of America, the left side, was at, was still uh, – they had sympathy for Muslims. They had sympathy – maybe not – I don't know for Islam, but they had sympathy for Muslims. That's changed, and maybe you've noticed that too, Ben, mm-hmm. that even the liberal left side is actually very anti-Islamic. That wasn't the case uh, after 9-11, uh, at least while I was still there for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I've certainly been seeing it. It's – it's it's actually really strange because being an atheist, I get accused of defending Islam a lot by Christians, which is a weird. It, it's a, it's for a conversation to take a weird turn like that. You kind of what? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, uh, it's it's one of those things that I've always wondered how these two um, different faiths react to one another when they're in the different parts of the world. Because it seems, you know, here in America that the Christian tradition is quite hostile to the Muslim tradition. Um, yeah. And I don't from and I've not been to Turkey or anywhere in, in uh, the Middle East. So I don't know this for sure. But from what I've understood from asking questions similar to this is it's not that way. In the Middle East, especially up until ISIS, it wasn't that way. I mean, ISIS is kind of like you know, it, they're the extremists. It's, they're it's, the KKK. Look, yeah. What is it? Ten percent of Egypt is Christian. Ten percent of uh, of Syria was Christian, and maybe even more of Iraq was Christian before, not just before ISIS, but also before America's invasion of Iraq. So America's eva- invasion of Iraq had a very detrimental effect to the Christians of Iraq too. Oh, so sure. let's not, you know, throw it. We can't throw it all on ISIS. Yeah. America and its actions in Iraq had a very big I, uh, impact. I, I think the actions in Iraq had, 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 had several, several consequences, some of which we're probably still largely unaware of. Yeah. Um, I mean, ISIS in, its, in and of itself is basically a consequence of America's actions. That doesn't mean that, you know, let's throw all the blame on America. No, but. Uh, one needs yeah. to actually look at this in a wider picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christianity did often uh, flourish, Judaism too, under the Islamic rulers. That doesn't mean that there weren't excesses in some uh, specific times and places. There were. But it was not how it is today, definitely. I mean, uh, it's changed over time. But, you know. I mean that there's this can go in a lot of different ways. Yeah, we're I think we're coming up. Yeah, we're coming up on an hour almost. Uh, so I was going to say it seemed to to me earlier that you were saying that um, God or there could be a God um, that is malevolent and so isn't really maximally great or perfect in the way that Christians and so on usually think of God as perfect. Um, so. Because of that, are there any arguments um, that Christian philosophers would present that you think you don't agree with? Because they depend on this idea that God is maximally great. So, for example, uh, the modal ontological argument. 
says that God is an excellent great being. And so he's going to have all of the perfections, all of the great making properties exemplified to their maximal degrees. Right. And so he's going to have the property of necessary existence. Um, and he has to have that in order for the argument to go through. Um, so do you think there is a modal ontological argument available to Muslims or not? Well, I mean, God, is, we would, we'd also say that God is necessarily existent. I and mean, that's just, you know, if you don't have that, you don't have a basis for this existence, but, uh, I don't think that's a modal argument. We wouldn't base, I don't think, no, we wouldn't base it on a modal argument. The idea of God being inf- uh, absolutely just and absolutely merciful or loving, uh, let's say, these two things are in contradiction. And so God, that's why God's son had to be sacrificed or, you know, the, um, yeah, we don't have that. That's one thing that uh, is not, you know, you know, a God is absolutely just and merciful. Huh. Okay. Now, now, now came the idea. So what we judge as being good and bad, we, that's something that we is in our conscious. And so we can't say that we don't really have the ability to exercise our uh, will over our conscious. And I mean this not in the way that, uh, you know, let, let me explain this. What we consider and what humans consider to be just and unjust, good and bad, uh, we all accept that. I mean, we never were taught that this was just and this was unjust. You know, it's, it's just kind of something we have intrinsically in our conscious. Now, so... If uh, something is good or bad Islamically, it's not based on the nature of the thing that exists. It's based on God deeming it good or bad. And so this, you know, the, the, the argument that uh, something is good, therefore God permits it, is methodologically wrong Islamically. It's good because God permitted it, and it's bad because God right. forbade it. Now, in Christianity and in naturalist philosophy, I've noticed that people tend to consider themselves an independent being. And this is very common in Western, in the Western world in general, that in, I saw that in your argument of being memories, the same thing. We are a separate being. God is a separate being. Uh, we exist. Our experiences are, are, they're related to us and they are independent of God. I would say, well, our pro, our conscious, and so, you know, what we call good and bad is programmed by God. And so my conscious and what I deem good and bad is not independent of God's uh, decree. So, you know, if God said this is good, he also programs into my conscious that same, that same yeah. idea. So there's not going to be a contradiction between it. God's decree is also equally uh, valid or equally uh, on my conscious. I mean, gotcha. You can't say, yeah. This is my conscious. There's a one-to-one correspondence between what you judge to be good and bad and what jo- God has actually determined to be good and bad. Exactly, because yeah. his determination of good and bad is what is my is what my conscious itself is based on. It's not like I just have a conscious, this is good and bad that that's independent of God in gotcha. the first place. And I think that's that's the basic naturalist argument uh, that is used, you know, uh, for, you know, the evil uh, evil's creation. So this does go back into or evil's existence. And so this does go back to the conversation of evil. E- evil exists. Why do you call it evil in the first place? Turn off your conscious, you know, if, if the conscious or my conscious were truly in my 
hand, you know, in my control, I would say, well, why, do, why would I want to feel bad when I lied to somebody or when I was cruel to somebody? Why don't I just turn that off? And, you know, not even that, make my conscious see that as a good thing. And I would feel, I would feel happy, you know, every time. Mm-hmm. I you know, we don't, I don't have that ability. You're, you will speak. I'm speaking for myself. You all think you all to everybody yeah. will speak for him. No, I don't, th- I don't think any, uh, it would be a very strange person that would be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've never met somebody who really has said, yeah, I can do that. I can just change the, what my conscious decides yeah. to be good and bad. So that, so I would say, yeah, the, the, the existence of the conscious is a is an evidence because i consider it created and programmed by god it's a it's an evidence for god but i think everything that is created is an evidence for god because a conscious doesn't exist in and of itself from nothing it's programming came from somewhere and we can get into this and go into a very long conversation (laughs) but in the end good and bad good and evil our basis for that is our conscious and that conscious is programmed by God. So why do we consider this evil in the first place? I think that's a more important question. This does, why is there evil? Well, it's because we consider something evil. So why do we consider something? Why do we consider evil in the first place? I don't think people actually consider that question. I think more often we have people who argue, you just need to uh, follow your conscious, and that's your religion. I think that was Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. You know, he said yeah. his conscious was yeah. his religion. I agree with that statement actually, because I think uh, the conscious, the existence of the conscious, is an argument for religion, not for belief in God. I, I consider them different. Uh, an argument for religion is the existence of the conscious, because God's programming what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what you should and shouldn't do. And you have that uh, reference in yourself too. Mm-hmm. That's religion, you know, in a sense. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. But uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming on and having this discussion with us. Uh, it's great to to get a fresh perspective. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And you know, uh, I hope to continue dialogue with you all. Absolutely. If you appreciate the tone and content of what Relay Theology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves. We here at Relay Theology would like to thank our Patreons. Kashi Savarina, Paul Pinos, Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Brandon McClarity, John Damon, Michael Tolfsrud, Roe Wilms, Ed Atkinson, Kid Blachowski, Andrew Schneider, Jason McLuta, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Sange. If you're interested in supporting Real A Theology, you can please come to our page at patreon.com slash realatheology.